Hello. You're listening to Global Questions, the podcast breaking down international news and politics. I'm Joshua. And I'm Hugh. This is The Wrap-Up, your fortnightly dose of news from around the world. And what an episode we have for you today. A bit of something for everyone, I think. We've got climate change, political power struggles, and even 90s rom-com movies. Yeah, we definitely have a good spread, and I'm very interested to see where you're heading with that. So let's get into it. COP26. 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 There could not be a more important moment that we should have international agreement. Well, Joshua, there's no way you haven't heard about the COP26 meeting in Glasgow because it's been all over the news and for good reason. World leaders have been gathering in the UK for what observers are calling the most important international meeting on climate change since the 2015 Paris Agreement. It's a summit that has been billed as the last best chance of curbing global warming, tackling the complex issue of how to limit global average temperature rises to 1.5 degrees centigrade. You see, world leaders, government ministers and other international representatives are expected to hash out a lot of major issues over the coming fortnight. And frankly, Josh, that's really important because we've seen some UN data come out recently suggesting that the world is very far behind on its climate change obligations. So the timing could not be better. Yeah, I heard that the UN had released a report right on the eve of the conference. So what does it have to say? Yeah, look, so the report's pretty grim, unfortunately. The United Nations has warned the world is on a catastrophic pathway to a hotter planet. The UN Secretary-General says failure will be measured in the massive loss of lives and livelihoods. And it said that if the world continues emissions reductions at its current really slow pace, then we're set to hit a 2.7 degree increase in global temperatures by the end of the century. And I know that sounds relatively low, but even a tiny change in global temperatures has a profound effect on ecosystems across the world. Yeah, 2.7 degrees, that's far above our global aim of 1.5 degrees. So what sort of effects are we talking about if we see 2.7 degrees warming across the globe? Well, even if we were to hit just two degrees increases, uh, then a lot of really grim things would start to happen. Uh, Under that scenario, and again, that's just two degrees, um, sea levels would be expected to rise by half a metre, About 16% of plants would lose around half of their habitable area and 37% of the global population would be exposed to severe heat every one to five years. Yeah, gosh, it's dire stuff. So what is COP26 then and how does it fit into all of this? Well, I think a lot of people have heard about it, but maybe a lot of people don't really know what COP26 actually is. So to give a summary, uh, it's the 26th gathering of the Conference of Parties or COP. Now, every UN member is part of the COP and essentially as a group, they're responsible for monitoring and reviewing something called the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. Now, that convention was first agreed upon in New York and Rio de Janeiro in 1992. And that was really the first time in human history that people and countries had come together uh, to fight climate change on a united front. This week at Rio, we have made a start. Beyond Rio, we must continue to carry it through. The COP later agreed to the Kyoto Protocol in 1997, which I'm sure many of our listeners would have heard of. I call on the world community to be bold, to adhere to the Kyoto Protocol. There is no time to lose. And then in 2015, uh, they agreed to the Paris Agreement. 
It took all day, but more than 170 countries signed the landmark Paris Accord on climate change today. The ceremony took place at the United Nations in New York. So now at COP26, the job is to pick up where we left off in Paris and agree to further international cooperation on climate change. So there are two weeks of talks scheduled and they began during the weekend. So what can we expect throughout those two weeks? What's on the rundown? Yeah, it's a good question. There's a lot of things on the agenda. As of Tuesday, world leaders will be wrapping up their leaders summit. And the point of that is basically uh, to coordinate high level cooperation between countries on ways to reduce emissions at a faster pace. And also, sadly, because we are so behind on our emissions reductions, uh, a lot of damage has already been locked in. So another job for the summit was coming up with ways to protect vulnerable communities and natural habitats from the environmental damage, which is kind of already inevitable. Uh, and lastly, even though Paris was six years ago, we're still yet to finalise a framework on helping countries trade their emissions. And that's a really important part of the plan. So hopefully negotiators will be able to figure that one out as well. Um, so clearly, as you said, there's a lot on the table and the race is really on to get some meaningful work done before the situation gets any worse. And we can only hope that they manage to do that for the sake of the entire world. It's a big job. A coup attempt is taking place in Sudan. The Armed Forces Ministry has said in a statement that the army has detained the civilian Prime Minister, Abdullah Hamdok, and taken him to an unidentified location. Hugh, another story that you might be aware of if you've been watching the news in the past fortnight is a coup in Sudan. So on Monday last week, the Sudanese military placed the PM under arrest and dissolved the government. Social media shows images of several cabinet ministers from the transitional government, the Sovereign Council, being arrested. The head of the military, General Al-Burhan, has now been declared Sudan's new leader. And this is a really significant development. Not only will it affect Sudan's 44 million people, but it could also have flow-on effects for global trade and the power struggle between Russia and the US. So I thought we'd take a closer look at why the coup took place and what it could mean. Yeah, OK, let's tackle the first of those issues. Um, what led to the coup? Well, to put it in context, we need to rewind to 2019 when Sudan's brutal dictator, Omar al-Bashir, was toppled by his own military after protests that lasted for over a year. This out of Sudan. After 30 years in power, President Omar al-Bashir has been forced out of power by the country's military. Al-Bashir was told by his security chiefs that there was no alternative but to step down and he went quietly. The military agreed to share power with the protest leaders in a so-called transitional government. And the aim was to hold elections down the track and to establish a democracy. However, cooperation between the military and protest leaders started to break down in 2020. And that led to some warnings that the military might try to seize full control, which, as we can see, turned out to be spot on. Mm, so the military's already toppled one dictatorship. How is it justified creating another one? Well, they say that the takeover was necessary to prevent a civil war and have claimed that they will still hold elections, but they'll do so in 2023. Though it seems few people in Sudan believe them. So over the weekend, we saw literally hundreds of thousands of people protesting on Sudan's streets. Chanting revolution and denouncing military rule, they want the civilian-led government restored. 
The military has also been condemned internationally for what they've done, with the US and the World Bank saying they'll withhold nearly $3 billion in aid that was earmarked for Sudan. Wow, okay, that's a pretty huge decision because I'm imagining Sudan's probably quite dependent on international aid. Yeah, they are. So the fact that the US and the World Bank have taken this step indicates they're actually really concerned about the potential flow-on effects of this coup. Mm, Okay, could you unpack that a little bit, these flow-on effects? Yeah, sure. So there are four major consequences that people are worried about here. First of all, there are the security implications. So Sudan borders seven other countries in Africa, and as a result, it's become a destination for people fleeing wars in neighbouring Ethiopia, Eritrea and South Sudan. So if Sudan also descends into chaos, it'll affect millions of refugees sheltering in the country and could further destabilise the entire region. Second, there are fears that the failure of democracy in Sudan could encourage militaries in other African democracies to stage similar takeovers. And this comes at a time when coup attempts in Africa are actually on the rise. So there have been six in the past year alone. Third, we have the global trade implications. So up to 30% of the world's shipping containers travel through Sudan's waters. So instability in the country could actually choke one of the world's biggest shipping routes. And finally, whoever controls the country is actually in a prime position to help influence the international balance of power. So Russia, China, the UAE and the US are all trying to exert influence in Africa at the moment. And Russia in particular has been trying to do that through building nuclear power plants and naval bases in Sudan. In fact, the Russian government has actually supported the military in this coup in the hope that it might receive approval for its projects. So it's pretty clear that what happens over the coming months will not only influence Sudan, but it will influence the wider region. So an important story to keep watch of, I think. Iran is highly critical of Azerbaijan's ties to Israel, which provides it with weapons. The relationship is strained and there are reports that the Azeris have shut down all websites which disseminate pro-Iranian content in the country. Well, as you would have just heard, Azerbaijan has just taken the step of banning all pro-Iranian websites in the country. And that's because uh, over the last few months, tensions have been rising between the two countries in a story that hasn't got much attention in the Western press. Interesting. So why is Azerbaijan banning Iranian websites? You might recall back in late 2020 when Azerbaijan and Armenia went to war over the disputed territory of Nagorno-Karabakh. Fighting between Azerbaijan and Armenia over the disputed territory of Nagorno-Karabakh is in its ninth day. Both sides have accused each other of attacking civilian areas and the casualties are going up. It actually had a bit of an effect on Iran as well. Prior to the conflict, Armenia had largely controlled the territory, uh, but following a series of devastating skirmishes with Azeri forces, the region effectively came under the control of Azerbaijan, which is a close ally of Turkey. By backing Azerbaijan in the conflict with Armenia, Turkey is viewed as expanding its influence in the Caucasus, a move that is stoking the Iranian-Turkish rivalry. Iran actually shares a long border with Turkey, Armenia and Azerbaijan, And so it's lost a lot of influence as a result of the war. 
Okay, so it sounds like Iran's been a loser in a war. It really wasn't even fighting. So how's it responded to Azerbaijan and Armenia? Just a few weeks ago, uh, Iran held a major military exercise along Azerbaijan's border. But Azerbaijan's leadership has also sent defiant messages to Iran, with President Aliyev promising that, quote, baseless allegations against the Azerbaijan nation would not go unanswered. And these tensions that we're seeing today are arguably rooted in historical conflict too, aren't they? Yeah, that's right. Look, going back as far as the 1990s, Azerbaijan and Iran have had a tense relationship. Uh, You see, a large part of Iran's northern territory is actually inhabited by ethnic Azeris. And so tensions exist between the two nations because there are fears that Iran's large Azeri population might one day attempt to secede and join a greater Azerbaijan. Uh, And we saw that during last year's fighting with Armenia, Iran's northern cities actually witnessed huge protests. As ethnic Azeris rallied in support of Azerbaijan and attempted to block any efforts by the Iranian government to assist Armenia. So why was Iran wanting to assist Armenia then? Well, Iran has a relatively small border with Armenia proper, but that border is used as a major thoroughfare and allows Iran to access places like the Caucasus, Russia and Europe. Uh, But with Azerbaijan now controlling Nagorno-Karabakh and the peace deal between the warring nations giving Azeri forces influence over road infrastructure in southern Armenia, Iran's feeling fairly cut off. And at the same time as this is all happening, Azerbaijan is getting very close not only to Turkey, but also to Iran's arch-rival Israel, which equipped Azerbaijan's army and largely enabled them to defeat Armenia last year. I can imagine Iran is not happy about any of this. So where does it go from here? Well, thankfully, uh, there's been some pretty good engagement lately between Azerbaijan and Iran, whose foreign ministers had some pretty frank and candid conversations, but they're at least productive conversations. Uh, But unfortunately, the underlying tensions are going to be at play for a long time ahead. So in a news cycle dominated by Western-centric news stories, I'd encourage our listeners to keep an eye on Azerbaijan and Iran, because I think their tense relationship says a lot about the broader changes in the region, and I doubt we're done hearing about them for now. For our final story, we're going to go to Hollywood. And Hugh, tell me, are you a fan of 90s rom-com movies? I'm not a fan of 90s rom-com movies, but I am a fan of seeing how they fit into the wrap-up, so please tell me more. Yeah, I must admit, they're not really my thing either. But if you are listening to this and you are a fan of 90s rom-coms, chances are you might recognise this voice. First, we're going to need a few more people helping us out. I'll tell you why. We're going to be spending an obscene amount of money in here. That, of course, was Hollywood actor Richard Gere, star of movies like Pretty Woman, Chicago, and so on. And I'm sure I'm not the only one wondering why we're talking about a Hollywood star on a global politics podcast. Yeah, well, it turns out that Richard Gere is not just a movie star in this instance. He's also the star witness in a trial accusing Italy's former deputy prime minister of kidnapping and abduction. Okay, um, tell us more. So the Italian politician I'm referring to here is Matteo Salvini. So he was the leader of The League, a far-right party that swept to power in Italy's 2018 elections. 
The Eurosceptic League has claimed the right to lead Italy after its centre-right alliance won the largest block of votes. For the first time, the League... And Salvini was named Deputy PM and put in charge of Italy's immigration portfolio. And while he held this role, he used his power to launch a massive crackdown on refugees and migrants. Matteo Salvini is sending a very strong message here to migrants and asylum seekers that they are not welcome in Italy uh, and the closed... Salvini deported refugees and even blocked boats that had rescued asylum seekers from the Mediterranean Sea from docking in Italy's ports. And this is where the kidnapping allegations come in. So in 2019, a Spanish ship called the Open Arms rescued 147 migrants who nearly drowned while trying to cross the Mediterranean. And the migrants desperately needed medical care. So the ship's captain asked for permission to dock in nearby Italy. And of course, Salvini refused. As a result, the ship was left stranded off the coast of Italy for 19 days and conditions on board grew pretty dire. They have been stranded off the coast of Italy for more than two weeks. Out of desperation, some are risking their lives, jumping off the vessel and attempting to swim to shore. Eventually, the boat was allowed to dock, but that was only after the courts intervened and ordered Salvini to change his instructions. And so now, Italian prosecutors allege that by keeping the migrants on the boat for so long, Salvini committed kidnapping, abduction, abuse of power and other human rights violations. Wow, okay. Um, how does Richard Gere come into all of this? Well, at the time, he was actually holidaying on the Italian coast. And when he heard about this ship stuck off the coast with all these migrants on board, he offered to help. And he ended up visiting the boat in an effort to draw international attention to the case. We're here on the open arms boat. We brought as much water and as much food as we possibly can. Because he's an eyewitness to the conditions on board, he's been asked to give evidence at the trial. Mm, okay, that makes sense. Um, so what does the trial mean for Salvini and his party then? Yeah, look, there are two ways to look at this trial. On one hand, it shows just how far Salvini has fallen. This guy was referred to as Italy's Donald Trump, and he was immensely popular. But his immigration policies grew so controversial that he was eventually dumped from the government. And if he is found guilty, he could face up to 15 years in jail and be barred from politics for life. And that would deprive the Italian far right of one of its most recognisable leaders. But... On the other hand, some say that the trial could also throw Salvini a bit of a political lifeline. So as his power has declined, he's struggled to get attention. But news that a Hollywood star may testify against him has catapulted him back into the media spotlight and given him the platform he wants. And what's more, it actually plays into his populist narrative that the elites are out to get him and ordinary Italians. That message proved popular once, and it could prove popular again. So the outcome of this trial won't just affect Salvini's future, it could also help determine the future of the Italian far right. Well, that's all for this fortnight's edition of The Wrap-Up. Next week's episode will be part three of our in-depth series on the decline of democracy. Rihanna will be chatting to some exciting guests about the rise of populism, 
and how it's changing the fabric of democracies around the world. Until then, follow our Instagram page for news updates, quizzes, and bonus content. You can also get in touch with us and suggest an episode via our website. Links are in the episode description. We'll see you in a fortnight. Bye.